Welcome to the See Me Now podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, here with my co-host, Caitlin Birdsall. And we are joined today by Dr. Tiffany Kinney, Associate Professor of English and new Department Head for Language, Literature, and Mass Communication. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You have um, a wealth of knowledge. Um, You got your PhD in rhetoric and composition at the University of Utah. Before that, um, you were at the University of Oregon. Uh, I'm actually from Oregon, so... I got, I saw that and I got really excited. <laughs> what part of Oregon? Uh, Southern Oregon. Medford. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I lived in Eugene for a bit though. I have to say Western Colorado is much, I don't know. I prefer it much more. <laughs> All There's the sunshine. Sun. Yes. Um, kind of talk about the world of English and how you've dedicated your entire life to that, that one subject. Yeah. So um, at first, when I was an undergrad, I didn't really know that I loved English as much as I did. Right? I had, I had AP credit, and I got into um, a small liberal arts school. And I remember when I was trying to decide what my major was going to be, I looked through the catalog and read the course descriptions. And the only classes I wanted to take were classes that I didn't necessarily need to because I already had that credit. Right? I could have gone on to something else. So I only wanted to take English classes, and that's what I ended up doing. I just followed something that I loved, um, even if it was difficult and it. It meant that sometimes you wouldn't always be paid very well. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what I, that's how I made my decision. Um, in terms of following along that path, sometimes there were questions about whether or not I should continue along that path, specifically by my parents who tried to push me to go to law school because they thought I was uh, good at writing and also at arguing, um, maybe sometimes too much at them, right, with them. But uh, I decided not not to go along that path. And I wanted just to study um, study literature. And in fact, I was, a, I was a first generation student, so I didn't really understand what graduate school was. And one of my professors in my junior year asked anybody who was interested in this thing called graduate school to stay after and talk with him more. And so I was one of two students that did. Um, and I just remember seeing him on um, outside of the classroom later, and he came up to me and said, Tiffany, would you be interested in this? You would be so great going to graduate school and potentially becoming a professor. And I said, yes, this sounds awesome. I want to learn more about it. Um, so that's kind of how it started. I ended up going to the University of Oregon, um, and I loved it, and I got to teach my first class there. Uh, when I was, I think I was 22. So I was, you know, four years older than the students I was teaching, which uh, was a little odd at the time. But also I developed a lot of confidence through through that process. And, and it taught me that I love to teach. Um, and so it, that was always the goal then being being a professor. That was what you strived to do with your your degree. Yeah. So I, I really just wanted to keep reading <laughs> and I wanted to keep writing. And so that allowed me to do do some of that. Um, after getting a master's degree, I decided to do something called Teach for America because I love teaching so much. I wanted to see see where that road went. Um, and it was fascinating. I got to teach in uh, some of the most difficult schools in America, but also it was really rewarding the students that you get to teach in those circumstances, right? And really feel like every day you're waking up and making a difference, which is something that I love about teaching at CMU as well, because I do feel that every day I wake up and I uh, I teach students about things they didn't know before, right? And so I feel like I'm making a difference. Um, yeah, I think I kind of, I think I answered your question. <laughs> 
Yes. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, Kelsey. So I know you've had a number of experiences leading to your time here at CMU, and one of those was at the National Park Service. Can you talk yeah. to us about what you did there, your role there, and how you maybe shaped the public's perception of the National Park Service? Yeah. So I haven't, I should clarify, I haven't worked at the National Park Service. So I'm, I'm currently studying the National Park Service. So potentially as my second book, I'm interested in thinking about um, how how women have shaped the the conversations around the National Park Service from the very beginning. And so I got started along this path by finding about finding out about a lady named Isabel Story. So she was one of the first editors-in-chief of the National Park Service um, when it was first in kind of its infancy. Um, and she, I became interested in her because I saw her archive in the, the National Archives in Washington, D.C., that she ghost wrote for Horace Albright, who was one of the first superintendents of the National Park Service. So I was fascinated in this idea of ghostwriting and how she wasn't necessarily given credit for some of the, the work that she did as a ghostwriter. Um, so I wanted to be able to think about what work she did and how she she should be given credit for, for shaping how we understand um, the National Park Service and interact with that landscape. So I got, I got interested through that, that frame of reference, but then also I started talking to other people about it and they would say things like, you need to interview this person who also is a ranger or a uh, does um, is the director of this particular national park because they would have something to say about their experience being a woman in in this national organization or administration. And that's really interesting research because when you do think about how many probably organizations and or public figures use ghostwriters um, for their voice, and so it's a, I don't know, it's a really interesting topic, and I'll be curious to see what comes out of your research and what comes next. Yeah, me too. And so going back a little bit, you know, you talked about you um, were a first generation college student. And here at Colorado Mesa University, we are a first generation serving institution. And you talk about making a difference in people's lives. And um, I have to say, you know, November all month long, um, we've been celebrating first generation students and hearing their stories. And you probably hear these stories day in and day out because you're working directly with with these students. And it's just incredible to hear um, how how they persevere and how courageous they are, because it is really difficult to do something you don't know how to do when you don't really have that support system at home. What has it meant to you to be a first-gen student and then to be really helping change the trajectory of all these people's lives? Yeah. So it's what keeps me... Uh, excited to come to, to Colorado Mesa University in the morning, right? So getting to teach students is really why I'm here um, and why I chose Colorado Mesa University to, to continue my career and start my career is because of this first generation focus, because 40%, I believe that was the, the latest number um, of our students, our first generation students. And so I definitely identify with those students and I'm excited to help them. Um, and some of the most, just in the last week, if I think about the most impactful moments I've had, it's been helping a first generation student on her on her personal statement to graduate school. So I read over it, I gave her comments. And even when I was giving her comments, I had goosebumps because it's so exciting to think about how potentially she's going to change the trajectory of of her family, right? Because because she wants to pursue further further um, further education. So you talked about some of your more recent 
research on the National Park Service and one of the ghostwriters, Isabel Story. But I know you've also had an interest in marginalized rhetorics that examine local histories and how they challenge dominant structures. Can you break that down for us of what exactly does that mean and, and what have you been finding in that research? Yeah, so my my most recent book project that was just published in November of last year, it really makes a foray into that that topic. And what that means is um, instead of reading histories that have been, uh, not that it's not peer-reviewed, it is peer-reviewed, but histories that you'd find in textbooks, right? They're written by certain positionalities, certain positions of power. Um, and archival research, which is my primary methodology, it allows us to see other voices that we wouldn't necessarily see because those documents are just donated. Sometimes they're cultivated by the archivist um, at the institution, but oftentimes they're just donated. And you don't always know what you're going to find in an archive. So it's kind of uncensored history in a way, right? So you go into an archive, you uh, you ask for particular documents, you don't always know what's going to be there, and you just start going through the documents and seeing what you can find. Um, And in that way, I would argue that we're using a local history, um, a history that's maybe uncensored, um, to to put pressure on historical dominant narratives that have existed throughout time. So it kind of speaks to what you're you're asking about, Caitlin. Um, My latest book project, it's entitled... The Legitimization of Mormon Feminist Rhetors, colon, a pan-historical analysis, which if you know anything about academic titles, right, they always have to have that colon um, and the, the further explanation. It's, it feels like it's part of the genre, but that one really tries to make an entry into um, into what you're, you're discussing there, right? Using localized history to put pressure on more dominant narratives. So within it, I was interested in this group of religious women who within feminist studies and women, women's history writ large, they're not always given attention for the work that they do. And they're not always seen as kind of radical or progressive in the ways that they are. Um, and so that's what I was interested in, in thinking about. How are they? Um, so that's why I chose the topic that I did is to put pressure on those dominant narratives and assumptions about about religious women um, being progressive and trying to, to push boundaries within their religion and trying to cultivate authority for themselves when they're not always given it, right? So with that type of research and those books that you've either written or are writing, what is your hope for the reader? Well, one... Well, I've, if it's a student reading it, right, which I don't always assign this kind of academic writing for my students. Like, they read academic writing, but not, um, I wouldn't assign my book in a class. I would maybe assign a section of it and then explain it to them, and we would use it to understand a piece. Um, And in fact, I just did that with my Women in World Thought class. They read a piece on um, entitled The Continuum of Legitimacy, which I broke down for them. It's really how different uh, marginalized groups throughout time have used different rhetorical strategies to cultivate legitimacy for themselves. So they've done that in different ways, right? So like one example might be they use performance. So they might come into a space and just act like they're legitimate, right? Like fake it till you make it, right? They might act like that to cultivate legitimacy. Um, Another aspect might be, or another part of that continuum um, or strategy rather, would be um, thinking about the 
the exigency or the time period in which they're trying to make this argument. So they might say things like, now is the time. Now is the time for this thing to happen because there, there hasn't been these conditions before. So I had them look at that and then think about the, the writings that we're reading specifically within that class and how female writers were trying to cultivate legitimacy for themselves. So that's how I've used it. That's how I want students to potentially interact with it. Um, in terms of other readers, I guess I just wanted to challenge their their understanding of these different religious groups, um, also to add to what they think about how women cultivate uh, authority or legitimacy for themselves, and potentially to acknowledge that there are still barriers to women cultivating authority and legitimacy, um, even if they're maybe unspoken in certain circumstances, they still exist. You just hit on so many interesting things. I mean, one, women in world, that's the class. Yeah, women in world, uh, women in world literature and thought. That okay, and then you said something like, um, when like when like there's never been another time that things have been happening right through all this research, but yet here we are talking about a class in college called women in the world, and people actually get to t carve out time into their day, into their life, and come on campus and talk about these things. Yeah. and learn about them. Like education is so incredible. And I think oftentimes we're seeing how, you know, what, like, where's education? Where does it fit in in the world now? Is there a place for higher ed? And it's like, when has there ever been a time where you get to carve out in your life and actually come learn about all these people doing incredible things, but then also push yourself? You know, yeah. I, I love that that class exists and that you teach it. Thank you. I love that it exists too. And I think my students do as well. They seem really excited to be there every day, which I'm excited to, to be there with them um, as well. And I think what you're kind of getting at, Kelsey, with your question is just the value of the humanities, really. So understanding different diverse perspectives allows us to, to work in different teams and to be able to communicate and understand perspectives that are different than our own, experiences that are different than our own, um, which I would argue is, is very important. <laughs> and you... Um you have this, you've been here six years now. And I know when we talked earlier offline, I was kind of getting at the point where um, I look at some of these, uh, this younger generation and they're on social media and they're, they're spelling your, you are, or, you know, like they're changing the way language is used in a real way. And so I'm always like, you know, oh my goodness, this is terrible. Why aren't people using the language as it should be used? But you had a really interesting perspective on that. I think if you could could bring that to, to the listeners. Yeah, well, I just think if you study that argument throughout time, right, other people have been afraid of different types of technologies that involve communication. So for instance, uh, one of the people I teach is Aristotle. I don't always um, teach this section of him, right? But he did believe he was, a, he was nervous about writing because it was a new a relatively new technology around the time that he was speaking because he came from more of an oral tradition where they would write down, um, write down lessons uh, as that person was speaking. So he was nervous about writing because he thought that it would ruin our memories, right? So because it was a, an oral tradition, mostly we would remember those lessons and be able to tell them to ourselves when we needed them. So he, he thought writing would destroy to destroy our memories, right? Um, and I think you can kind of see that now a little bit with internet technology. So there's somebody named Nicholas Carr who has this interesting piece in The Atlantic 
That's about, it's called The Shallows. It's part of his larger book where he argues that our brains are actually changing because of internet technology. So instead of being able to focus on a book for a long period of time, we're finding that um, our brains are kind of, I guess, more rhizomatic, right? So they're, they're more um, horizontal. We're able to like focus on things, a lot of things for a little bit of time. And so that's his argument, right? That technology, again, internet is intervening and changing the ways in which we think. And I think that with, uh, with cell phones, right, and the ways in which we communicate now and we see our students or younger generations communicating, it's something similar. Like people are seeing that and they're horrified, right? This technology is entering into this conversation and it is destroying the ways in which we think and the ways in which we write. Um, but I would argue that potentially you can see a lot of uh, inventiveness within the ways in which they're, they're communicating together. Um, I would also say, though, that it's important to teach students about audience, right? Like when is the place to use that kind of language versus when maybe we shouldn't be using that language in more of a formal setting. But I'm, I, guess, I guess I'm less scared um, of them them using that kind of like text speak. Yeah, you're so optimistic. I mean, I was playing Scrabble over the weekend and, you know, now every every word that's not even a word is acceptable in Scrabble. And it, but it's optimistic. It's like the, the future is okay. It's okay if there's more, you know, more words and if they're spelled wrong, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you hit on that. There's a time and a place. So a student tweeting or posting something on TikTok may write in one form, but they also have to understand and know the importance of more of a traditional compositional piece and rhetoric and be able to use both and switch back and forth between the two, which is, I, I feel like something in itself that you have to learn. Yeah, for, for sure. And I wouldn't want them to think that potentially they can use certain language in more gatekeeping genres. So for instance, a cover letter or resume, right? I'd want them to learn the difference between these different genres and when potentially it's appropriate, right? The rhetorical situation calls for them to respond in different ways. And I think that's part of just being um, a sophisticated communicator, right? Like knowing when to use that kind of language or text speak and when potentially not. So I know that you've taught a number of courses throughout your time here at CMU, everything from professional and technical writing to English composition, science writing. Out of all of the courses that you've taught, what do you think is maybe one area that's your favorite or that you've really enjoyed doing? Oh, my goodness. Well, I think there's a favorite in every single one of those courses, right? Because you end up building it in a way that that you enjoy and also that students enjoy because you're having so much fun, too. Um I guess, well, the course I'm teaching right now is super fun because I've always wanted to teach a course on women's literature and world thought um, because my book makes an entry into that. I've taken multiple courses at the graduate level specifically on that topic. Um, I've always been interested in, in women's literature and women's rhetoric. Um, I guess as a close second, because I've already told you a little bit about that class, is uh, my English 491 class. So that's composition theory and practice. So that class teaches future English teachers how to teach people to write, right? So it's kind of meta, it's a big right? challenge. And, <laughs> and teaching future English teachers. Um, but I just love that class because the students give me so much hope for what the educational system could look like in the future, right? By, by teaching them about composition theory, um, by having them implement that kind of composition theory within the classroom. So they're not just teaching writing as this kind of fill in the blank, right? Like paint by numbers, this is where you do this, this is where you do that. Instead, it's more sophisticated and <laughs> allows for um, a, a better, fuller understanding of the rhetorical situation, uh, yeah, overall. 
You talked about being a good communicator and now you're, you know, speaking on how to teach teachers um, how to teach writing. <laughs> and so I, I know that there's a large population of people who um, are, are f- afraid to even write. You know, they, they're unsure of how to get their words on paper and how to get their point across in a clear way. I know that when it comes to writing, it, you have to enjoy it some, right? And can you teach, can you teach that? So I think you can, there is research. And so one of the, the people that's, that came for the LLMC lecture series in October, Dr. Amy Williams, she studies this. She thinks about how we can create environments for students to write in where they might enjoy it more, right? So if you think she has students, for instance, log when they're writing and how they're enjoying it so they can figure out where they like to write. Right, so it might not be in the classroom. It's really hard to construct a useful space in the classroom just for writing. Most of the time, the best writing happens potentially outside of the classroom or in the library or somewhere that students feel comfortable. Not that they don't in, in the classroom. Hopefully they do. That's our goal, right? But just somewhere where maybe they can have like light music playing and then they also have tea and whatever else they need to help them to help them write a little bit better instead of just feeling like it's um, like a, a hoop maybe that they have to jump through. I'd also say practice. So with anything, like with running or with swimming, the more that you do it, the better you get at it. So I would say helping students find something potential that they like within writing, like even if it's just a small thing, and then helping them practice again and again and again until they develop more skills um, would be would be something I would suggest. So I know earlier you, we were talking about technological advances and how our brains are almost adjusting to more of that short term being able to switch back and forth and almost where maybe it's becoming harder to sit down and read a book. I can tell you for myself, I go in and out of, I've always been a pretty avid reader, but there are times when I'm less of an avid reader and I'm getting back into my swing of reading. You know, I think I've read three books in the last three weeks. And for me, I love it. I love going to the library and I like how quiet it is. I like the smell of books. Like I'm a physical book reader rather than like on a Kindle or something. Um, What do you think it is about libraries and physical books that make people connect to the story? I don't know. I, I agree that there is something to that. And that's part of the reason I love archival research, because you're actually in the archive physically holding the documents often. And sometimes they're like one of a kind documents that you can't see anywhere else. And there's just something about that kinesthetic experience, I think, um, that allows us to feel more connected. And it allows me, when I do my own research, to feel more connected to the people I'm writing about, right? Because I'm literally seeing their handwriting in front of me. And I think it also helps students feel more connected because sometimes I'll bring in archival work that connects with something that we're reading about. So for instance, we we talked a little bit about Susan B. Anthony's work and I brought in something that was handwritten by her and I showed it to my students. And I just think that that kind of experience helps them connect more with what they're learning about. Um, I don't know if I can totally explain it, but I agree with you that there, there is something to like physically holding a book um, and turning through the pages um, and also thinking about the other people who have physically held the book um, or who who have created the document by hand. Yeah, or been impacted by it. Yeah. And then I, ha- I have to ask, and this might put you on the spot a little bit, is there a book that you've read recently that you would recommend 
for people to read. I know for myself, I'm part of what I call our multi-generational book club. So it's everybody from 30-year-olds up to 70-year-olds, and we span across the country. And we meet probably about every four to six weeks, and we choose books of all different topics. And we just read one called Lessons in Chemistry, and it was by Betty Garmus. It was fantastic. But it was like one of those books that I was like, this is why I love reading. So I'm wondering if you've read anything recently or maybe one of your like all-time favorites that you'd recommend our listeners check out. So my all-time favorite book is Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway. I just love that book. Um, but the one that I just read this weekend and I started to read at was is entitled uh, Seek You, the A Journey Through American Loneliness, which is kind of fascinating. I know it sounds a bit depressing. Um, it is, it's a graphic novel and our common read committee. So we're moving on from the, the last common read that we did. And I've asked them to think about potentially other books they'd want students to read. And they just chose this, they selected this book called Seek You. Um, and it, it's fascinating. So it's about how um, loneliness and they take, they think about the pandemic, how that changed our brains and our interactions with each other um, and how some of that was unnatural, right? Because humans are kind of designed to want to be social and connect with other people. And so I'm right now in the middle of reading that book, but it's been it's been fascinating and it's beautifully done. So there's it's a graphic novel, right? So there's images throughout, of course, um, but that's potentially one that if you haven't checked it out, look for that. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Dr. Kinney, thank you so much for being here. It's been wonderful chatting with you. I'm, I know for myself, I'm very excited to see what you do as our new um, department head. I, I think there's, yeah, great things to come. Oh, thank you, Kelsey. You're very sweet. <laughs> thank you for listening to the See Me Now podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.